Well, good afternoon, Hallows Church. My name is Jeff, and I serve as one of the pastors here with our church. I spend most of my time and focus up at our North Expression, uh, where you may have heard just this past week, we had our first Sunday together, gathering together on Sunday mornings in our new home up there, and so we're excited about that. We're settling in uh, to our new home, moving forward into the future by faith up there, but it is always uh, my privilege and my pleasure to be here with you in Fremont in this way as we open our Bibles today to Acts uh, chapter 17, the passage we heard read just a few moments ago. Now, as you may also know, next week uh, is our fall kickoff. If you don't know that, you'll be hearing more about that a little bit later in uh, the, our gathering. Uh, but we'll be starting a new sermon series next week from the Old Testament, from the book of Judges, and it's going to be a fascinating uh, study, I believe. But this week, this week I wanted to take some time to kind of recalibrate our hearts and our minds around what it is that Jesus calls us to do and who it is that Jesus calls us to be as we go about living our lives here in the city of Seattle in the year 2018. And Jesus, he kind of sets the pace for us in this in an interesting uh, way. In fact, one of the things you see as you step back and you consider uh, the life of Jesus is that, is that he was always moving toward people. He was always pursuing people from various walks of life, sharing many meals with many different types of people, hanging out at social events and parties with many different types of people. In fact, Jesus, he was doing these things to such an extent that the uh, religious leaders of the day, they, they had a problem with it. You see, from their perspective, Jesus was often welcoming and associating with the wrong types of people, the types of people who in their minds God would surely never welcome and just leaders appreciate with. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, these same religious leaders, because of these very things, accused Jesus of being a friend of sinners. They accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard. And why would they do that? Because of the relationships that he maintained and because of the events that he attended. You see, Jesus was always moving toward people, people from all different walks of life. He moved toward uh, the least of society, the, the worst of society, the best of society, and everybody in between. And he brought to each one of them the same message of God's grace and God's kingdom that was coming and that had come. And friends, I want to suggest to you today that there's a sense in which Jesus calls you and I as Christians to follow the same sort of pattern in our own lives. In John chapter 17, when Jesus was praying to the Father, he said this, he said, uh, Father, as you sent me into the world, so I'm sending them into the world too. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, go. He doesn't say stay put and they'll come to you. No, he says, go. He says, move, go and make disciples. Tell people about me, invite them in. And so part of our mission as Christians is that we are sent into the world by Jesus to pursue people, just as Jesus was sent into the world by the Father to pursue us. We're called to pursue relationships with people from all different walks of life and to help point those people, to help point them by the ways that we live our lives and the words that we speak from our mouths to the God who created them, and to the God who loves them. But this is not easy in our city. You know this. I know this. 
We live in a culture that is incredibly diverse in the ways that people see the world uh, around them, how they see themselves and their place in it, and how they see spiritual reality and the very concept of God. Many around us will contend that there is no God. Many will say that there is no way to be sure whether there is a God or not. Many will say that, of course, there's a God, and there are many different equally valid pathways to that God. And that's actually a pretty attractive idea, isn't it, that all religions are basically the same, that they all ultimately lead to the same God. It's very affirming. It sounds very inclusive. It would simplify a lot of things, really. But there's a pretty glaring problem with that view, and the problem with that view is that it does not take seriously the actual teachings of those respective religions. If you're paying careful attention, which many are not, you realize they simply can't all be true based on the very things that they teach. And yet our culture has become quite insistent that any claim that one religion is uh, better or more true than another is to be quickly dismissed and rejected as, as being intolerant or exclusionary and even hateful. And this makes it quite challenging for us, doesn't it, to live our lives on mission for Jesus in, in this city in which we live? If we're going to be a people here at the Hallows Church who are sent by Jesus into the world to engage in real relationships with the people around us, hoping to introduce them uh, to Jesus, how do, we, how do we begin? Where do we even begin? I'd like to read a series of quotes for you from various voices around us in our culture, and I'd like to ask you just to kind of listen and to see what you can learn about the person behind these words. Actress Sarah Michelle Gellar, in an interview with a European newspaper, she said this. She said, I consider myself a spiritual person. I believe in an idea of God, although it is my own personal idea. I find most religions interesting, and I've been to every kind of de denomination, Catholic, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist. I've taken bits from everything and customized it for myself, she said. Actor and writer and director Woody Allen, in confronting his own mortality, he said this in an, inter in an interview. He says, uh, there's no advantage to aging. You don't get wiser. You don't get more mellow. You don't see life in a more glowing way. You have to fight your body decaying, and you have less options. The only thing you can do is what you did when you were 20, which is to distract yourself, because you're always walking with an abyss right under your feet. Getting involved in a movie, he says, occupies all of my anxiety. If I wasn't concentrated on that, I'd be thinking of larger issues, and those aren't resolvable. And he says, you're checkmated whichever way you go. Comedian Louis C.K. in an interview shared his beliefs about the impossibility of atheism. He said, I'm not a religious person. I don't know if there is a God. He says, that's all I can say honestly. I don't know. Some people can say that they know there isn't a God. That's weird. That's a weird thing to say, isn't it? Are you sure there is not a God? How do you know? Because you haven't seen him? Really? You do realize it's a pretty vast universe out there, and you can only see for about 100 yards in front of you, as long as there's not a building in your way. How can you possibly know there's no God? Did you look everywhere? Did you look in the downstairs bathroom? Singer Cheryl Crow, in an interview with the New York Post, said this. She said, I believe in God. 
I believe in Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and all of those who were enlightened. She says, I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm a, a strict Christian. Actress Halle Berry says, I believe in God. I just don't know if that God is Jehovah, Buddha, or Allah. Award-winning British writer Julian Barnes, he's a self-described agnostic. He wrote this. He said, he said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Barnes writes, I was never baptized, never sent to Sunday school. I've never been to a normal church service in my life. And yet he says he feels haunted by the beauty of Christian art and music and by what he calls the wake-up call to morality. And so I'd like to ask you, what can you learn from those descriptions? And I'd like to ask you as well, what do you, what do you feel when you hear those descriptions? Do you feel much of anything? And if you wanted to move toward people like these and to engage them in relationship, to engage them perhaps in a spiritual conversation, how would you go about approaching that? Would you know where you even wanted to start? In this passage, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 21, Paul is going to help us here. I think he's going to, he's going to show us how we can approach this. He's going to show us a pattern, I think, that should both instruct us and challenge us in how we engage the people and the culture around us. And there are three things I'd like to draw out of this passage today. What Paul saw in Athens, what Paul felt about what he saw, and what Paul did, what he did about it. First, what Paul saw. Now, in this passage, Paul had just arrived in Athens, and, and verse 16 says that Paul was, he was waiting in Athens for them, for the rest of his group to arrive. You see, he had arrived ahead of his group. And the reason for this, we're told earlier in chapter 17, is that Paul and his group had been kind of roughed up and harassed and run out of town in Thessalonica, and then again in Berea. And the reason that happened is because not everyone liked the message that they were bringing about Jesus but they managed to extract Paul from what, was, what is described as, as riots and mobs, and Paul was able to kind of slip out and, and to make his way to Athens on his own. And as Paul was waiting there in Athens for the, rest of his, uh, for the rest of his group to join him, he surely could have enjoyed some downtime, right? He had just managed to escape from what seems to, be a, a very seems to have been a very dangerous uh, situation, and so this would have been a great opportunity for Paul to kind of catch his breath, to uh, reset and to recharge, and even to take in the sights, because there was much to see and much to take in in the city of Athens. Athens was an incredible city at the time, a beautiful city, a famous city. And Paul certainly saw this about Athens, but, but Paul was seeing some other things about Athens too, in addition to its beauty. You see, what Paul saw was not only that Athens was a very beautiful city and a very impressive uh, city in many ways, he also saw that Athens was a very progressive city too. He saw a city and a culture in Athens that was progressive. Indeed, at that time, Athens could boast of many uh, accomplishments and achievements in many different areas of human pursuit, whether we're talking about uh, literature or the arts whether we're talking about business and commerce, whether we're talking about philosophy or the sciences, Athens had a lot going on. 
Think about some of the famous names that contributed to the Athenian culture back in the day, people like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. These are some very heavy hitters in the history of the human race. One commentator compared the intellectual firepower of Athens to Oxford, Cambridge, and all the Ivy League schools kind of rolled into one. And so Athens was in many ways a cutting-edge city, a cutting-edge culture. It had a lot going on, and there was much to be impressed with. But here's the thing, this progressive reputation that Athens had was not necessarily viewed by everyone as a positive thing. Some, in fact, would say that Athens was something of a fickle city, a city that was always seeking to define itself and then to redefine itself again and again and again. We get a glimpse of that in verse 21 of this very passage where it says that all the Athenians and the foreigners uh, residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. And there are actually examples of other writings back then that would kind of uh, poke fun at the Athenians, talking about their insatiable appetite for new ideas and for how easily distracted they would seem to become by the next big movement, by the next big cause, by the next big thing. And friends, one of the reasons I think this passage is important for us today is that the city of Seattle, in many ways, is not unlike the city of Athens. We're a city that loves to view itself as being on the cutting edge of culture, on the cutting edge of intellectual thought, of social policy, of business success, always thinking we're paving the way for others and always thinking that others really need us to do that. Seattle today is not unlike Athens then, and so all the more reason that we should pay uh, close attention to the Apostle Paul here as we consider how he approached and engaged the people and the culture around him. And so Paul saw in Athens first a culture that was very progressive, not unlike our own, but Paul also saw in Athens a culture that was pluralistic. You see, in Athens at that time, there were saw this. Paul really uh, dialed into this, in fact. In verse 16, it says that uh, Paul saw that the city of Athens was full of idols. And very interestingly, when verse 16 says Paul saw, he saw that the city of Athens was full of idols, there was a really simple Greek word that Luke, the, the author of the book of Acts, could have used in this instance to express this. Luke could have used the Greek word uh, blepo, which means simply to look and to see. But Luke used a different word in verse 16, a different word, in fact, with different connotations. Rather than simply saying that Paul looked and saw that the city was full of idols, Luke used the word theoreo which means most literally to theorize or to perceive. It means kind of to, uh, to kind of see under or to see through. The word Luke chose to use here gives us a sen the sense that Paul was not just looking and seeing in some sort of passive sense. No, he was, he was engaged in very careful consideration, very deliberate uh, observation and study of the city of Athens and of the people who lived there. And as he did, we're told in verse 16 that what Paul perceived was that the city of Athens was a city that was full of idols. And it's interesting, this phrase, full of idols, the author Luke actually uh, makes up a new Greek word here. He puts two Greek words together here that don't normally 
go together in the Greek language, and, it, and it's translated in your Bible as that phrase, full of idols. Rather, and, and the way that Paul put these two Greek words together gives a very strong sense that the city and its people were not just full of idols. Rather, it gives a very strong sense that the city and its people were being smothered by and buried under those idols. You see, Athens was full of many diverse spiritual perspectives in that day. The city had many elaborate temples and shrines. It had uh, many beautiful statues and altars dedicated to the Roman gods, to the, the Greek gods, to pagan gods of many uh, types and varieties. In fact, one very beautiful statue of the Greek goddess Athena was made from gold and ivory, and it was said to be so big that it was visible from, from 40 miles away. And surely Paul was not blind to all of this beauty or unaware of Athens' history. Surely Paul could have been caught up in the splendor of this uh, great city. But it was neither the beauty nor the brilliance that struck Paul most about Athens. No, what struck Paul most about the city of Athens and about the people of Athens was their idolatry. You see, the people of Athens were in every way constructing substitutes for God. They were constructing false gods. We all do it, really. And they were looking to those false gods to help make sense of their lives and to help make things right in their lives. And Paul knew full well that when you do that with anything other than the one true God, those false gods, eventually they will stop serving you and they will begin smothering you and they will, in the end, bury you that's what idolatry is, and that's what idolatry does, and that's what Paul was seeing and sensing in Athens. He saw the people of Athens putting their trust and their hope in these substitutes, in these false gods. All people do it at some level, some more overtly than others, but everybody is looking to something as their God, right, to give shape and significance to their lives. The fallen human heart is always looking for someone or something to worship. Martin Luther once said that whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional Savior, your idol. For some, it's their career. For some, it's education. For some, it's money or success or power. For some, it's pleasure. For some, it's physical attractiveness. For some, it's their spouse, or perhaps their children, or themselves. And quite clearly, idols are not necessarily bad things in and of themselves. In fact, most often they are good things that just get out of order in their level of importance in our lives and in the level of control they have over our lives. It is true that the idolatry in Athens then surely took on different forms than the idolatry here in Seattle today, but at the heart level, they are really no different at all. And so how Paul approaches and responds to what he saw in Athens is indeed instructive uh, and relevant for us today. And one of the first things Paul shows us is that as Christians, we are 
We are not to keep our heads down, going about life disengaged from what is going on around us. We're to keep our heads up and our eyes open, as Paul did in Athens, observing, assessing, evaluating, trying to understand people, trying to understand what people are looking to most for their value and for their worth. If we're going to be effective in engaging the people around us for the sake of the gospel, we need to be deliberate. We need to take the time to to understand what people's hearts are clinging to what people's hearts are confiding in so that we can begin to expose those things, those substitutes as the false and fleeting gods that they are. Now, interestingly, in verse 16, we find that not only did Paul look around and see that the city was buried in idols, we also find that what Paul uh, saw in Athens, it caused him to, to feel something It stirred up some very strong emotions within him. And one of the ways we know that is because we're told in verse 16 that as Paul uh, saw the idolatry that was smothering the people of Athens, it says he was deeply distressed. Many translations say that what Paul felt there was, uh, rather they say that that Paul felt provoked. That word uh, is translated as provoked in verse 16. He felt provoked by what he saw. Now, at first glance, it would be easy just to say that Paul was angry. He was angry at what he saw, and there was certainly an element of anger there, but there was more to it as well. The word translated as provoked or deeply distressed in verse 16, it it comes from an interesting word in the Greek language. It actually bears some uh, relationship to another word that means seizure or to have a, a seizure or some sort of other violent reaction. And that tells us indeed something about the intensity, I think, of Paul's feelings. But there's something else interesting about this word provoked and how it's used here. You see, the way the Greek verb is used in this verse makes very clear that we're not talking about some sort of one-time loss of temper or outburst of emotion from the Apostle Paul. Rather, it conveys the idea that what Paul was feeling was something of a continuous and ongoing reaction deep within him to what he had carefully observed around him in Athens. In fact, as we dig a little deeper, we get the sense that what Paul felt here, it was, not a, it was not a simple thing. It was not a simple thing at all. Rather, what Paul felt in this situation and about this city, it was complex. We see that Paul felt not only provoked by what he saw, he also felt a complexity of emotions because of what he saw. And we begin to see that most clearly, I think, when we consider how this very same word provoked is, is used in other parts of the Bible. And what you find when you do that is that this word provoked is used in other parts of the Bible uh, to describe for us how God feels and how God reacts when he sees his people turning their backs on him. In fact, we see the same word associated with, part, uh, associated with parts of the Bible that speak of God being Uh, provoked to jealousy for his people because of their idolatry. The jealousy of God, it's an interesting thing. We're told on a number of occasions in the Bible that God is a jealous God, but at the very same time, we're told uh, in the Bible not to be jealous ourselves. In fact, we're told it's a sin. 
James chapter 3, verse 14 says that where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 tells us that jealousy is a, a sinful work of the flesh. Nevertheless, in Exodus chapter 20, in one of the Ten Commandments, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. He's speaking against idolatry there, and then he explains why. He says, for I am a jealous God. And so on the one hand, we're told that jealousy is a sin, and on the other hand, we're told that our God is a jealous God. And then in places like 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul says to the church in Corinth, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Now, at first glance, it seems hard to make sense of this, but but what we begin to see, I think, as we pay close attention to what the Bible says about this is that there's uh, clearly a bad type of jealousy, a human jealousy, and there's a good type of jealousy, a godly jealousy. But this can be a source of confusion for some. In fact, the story goes that Oprah Winfrey walked away from Orthodox Christianity when she was 27 years old because of the biblical teaching that God is jealous, that He is jealous for our highest allegiance and affections, that He demands our praise and worship. It didn't sound very loving to her. To her, in fact, it sounded somewhat egocentric and needy on God's part. And this is understandable when we're talking in terms of human jealousy because that is what uh, human jealousy really is all about. Human jealousy is always self-centered and self-serving. Human jealousy says, I don't like you because you have something I want or I don't want to lose you so I'm going to do whatever it is I have to do to hold on to you. Human jealousy is not really about the other person at all. It's really about the self. It's about ego and pride. And this sort of human jealousy, this sort of proud jealousy, it can lead to pretty extreme reactions and pretty extreme emotions at times. We know this. We know full well that human jealousy, when pushed, it will often rise up. It will often rear its ugly head. In fact, human jealousy, when pushed far enough, it will rise up and it will even kill. Even if that jealousy may have started out based in love, it turns to anger and the love is replaced by the anger and the anger overwhelms and and overtakes that love. That's human jealousy. That's selfish and sinful jealousy. But godly jealousy is different. Godly jealousy begins loving and it stays loving. It's not about the self. It's not about the ego. It's, it's self, selfless, in fact. It's about the other. Think about this. If you love somebody deeply, you see them destroying their lives, or you see them looking for significance and, and for meaning in the wrong ways, you don't just shrug it off and, and say, oh, well. No, you get upset, right? You get angry. There's a complexity of emotions that includes anger, but it also includes love. It includes anger, but it also includes things like mercy and compassion. 
There's anger to be sure, but the anger never becomes untethered from these other emotions. And this is what this word provoked in verse 16 is getting across. What Paul saw in Athens caused Paul to feel provoked, provoked to a godly jealousy for the people of Athens. And so what do you feel when you look around in our own city and when you look at the people of our city who don't know Jesus and when you see them pursuing false gods that you know will inevitably let them down and will inevitably bury them, do you feel much of anything? Do you feel provoked in any way by what you see? Paul felt provoked by what he saw in Athens and he had this complexity of emotions, but what we also see in this passage is not only uh, what Paul saw and what Paul felt, but also what Paul did, what he did about what he was seeing and what he was feeling. And one of the things we see that Paul did was to move. We see Paul moving very intentionally toward people from all different walks of life. He moved toward the people of Athens regardless of who they were or where they came from or what they believed. In verse 17, for example, we see Paul moving toward the Jewish people of Athens by stepping directly into their place of worship, into the synagogues. And the truth is, this would have been pretty natural for Paul. He was a Jew, so this was kind of his sweet spot. It was his uh, comfort zone. But one thing about Paul is he would rarely stay uh, in his comfort zone for very long. In fact, we also see in this passage in the verses that follow Paul addressing uh, the group known as the Areopagus. Now, this was a group of high-powered politicians and, and philosophers. These, these were kind of the cultural elites uh, of the day who had jurisdiction over much of Greek life, and, and Paul went there too. And then in verse 17, we also see Paul moving toward the marketplace. The Greek word for this is agora, the, the marketplace. But to be clear, the agora was not, it was not some sort of shopping mall. In fact, the Agora was the center and the source of everything in Athens. It was the center for news and for commerce. It was the center for entertainment, for uh, the arts, for finance and education. The marketplace was the center of everything in Athens, culturally uh, speaking, and Paul took his faith there too. And I do know that Paul is Paul and we are not. But let's be careful not to ever use that as an excuse for being passive or timid in our walk with Jesus, because I think it's safe to say that each and every one of us could be and should be more thoughtful and more intentional in the ways we're moving toward and engaging the people and the city around us. Now, another thing we see here with Paul is that in addition to to moving intentionally toward people in these sorts of ways... We also see that when Paul spoke, he spoke thoughtfully. He was thoughtful and deliberate in both uh, how he spoke to people and also in what he said to them. As we've already seen, Paul was very deliberate in the ways he observed and studied the people around him. He was always trying to understand their uh, motivations, their uh, presuppositions, their view of the world. And as a result, Paul usually knew something He usually knew something about the people to whom he was speaking. He understood something about their beliefs, and he used that information thoughtfully and 
and even creatively in how he interacted with those same people. And that makes sense, doesn't it? The more we know about the people around us and what makes them tick, the better position we're in to really hear them, to understand them, and to find common ground and, and uh, points of contact with them. And we see that very thing as Paul begins engaging different groups of people uh, in Athens in different ways, depending on where he was at and depending on who he was talking to. In fact, what we see here and elsewhere is that although Paul would never uh, change or compromise the contents of the gospel, gospel message, he was, he was more than willing at every turn to adapt his style and his methodology for, for delivering that message. It says in this passage that Paul reasoned with the Jewish people in the synagogues. He reasoned with them. We see that while uh, two earlier in this chapter, in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, where it tells us that while Paul was in Thessalonica, he went into the synagogues there too, and it says he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying to them, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And so with the Jews, we see, we see Paul starting the conversation from within his listeners' own worldview, reasoning with them and moving them toward the understanding that Jesus is the one about whom all of their scriptures actually testify and reveal. And then in the marketplace, in the Agora, we see Paul again reasoning with people, but in some different ways. What we don't really see there is Paul getting up and preaching. Rather, we see him engaging people relationally, listening and learning and conversing. And who is he doing that with? It says, with whoever happened to be there in verse 17. And then when, then when Paul gets to the Areopagus, he is again adapting his approach there he does not quote Scripture like he did in the synagogues. Rather, we find Paul quoting to the Areopagus, their own uh, Greek thinkers, uh, back at them. You see some of that down at, in verse 28 of Acts chapter 17. And so we again see Paul seeking to understand and, and uh, inhabit the worldview of his listeners and finding common ground so that he could ultimately begin to uh, deconstruct that worldview and to, to move them beyond it, to move them closer and closer to the gospel. What we need to see here is that Paul did not rely upon any simple or single formula to point people to Jesus. In fact, we see him being incredibly nimble and adaptable here and throughout the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20, Paul kind of lays out his whole strategy for us. He says this, he says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews, to those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law, to those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. And get this, I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save being. And isn't that exactly what we see Paul doing in Athens in this passage, being flexible and adaptable, looking for 
looking for common ground and points of contact, laying a careful and intentional groundwork that he hoped by God's grace would move his listener closer and closer to being apprehended by the gospel. Finally, not only did Paul move intentionally and speak thoughtfully, thoughtfully, we also see the way in which he so effectively balanced grace and truth. You don't ever really see Paul giving too much grace and not enough truth. You don't see him giving too much truth and not enough grace. He kept these things in their uh, proper balance. Now remember, Paul was provoked by what he saw in Athens. He felt anger. He felt uh, frustration. He felt jealousy. These are these are strong emotions Paul was uh, feeling, and these uh, emotions compelled Paul to move his feet, and they compelled Paul as well to open his mouth and to, to speak truth. But all those strong feelings, all those rather hard emotions, they were counterbalanced at, at every turn by softer emotions like compassion, mercy, and, and love. And these softer emotions, I think, are what really kept Paul humble and balanced when, when he did open his mouth. Paul was passionate about the gospel, and he refused to compromise the truth, but he was always gracious in how and, and in when he communicated that truth. Friends, nobody extends grace more generously toward others than the person who is deeply convinced of his own need for it. And Paul knew that he was nothing apart from God's grace. And as a result, even though Paul had a certain intensity about him and about his faith, he was never obnoxious about it. And on the flip side, even though Paul was gentle and gracious in his posture uh, toward other people, you could never describe Paul as cowardly or timid. Paul wasn't overly aggressive and he wasn't overly passive either. He was driven really by both sides of the equation. He was driven by his anger against sin and idolatry, but at the very same time, he was driven too by the compassion that he felt for the people he saw being smothered and buried by it. Like Paul, we need to see and be driven by both sides of this equation. Think about this with me. If you're only one or the other, if you're either too intense about your faith or too passive about your faith, you're not going to see many lives change, not in a place like Seattle. Many Christians come across as harsh or abrasive in their efforts to communicate or defend the Christian faith. Mere condemning or self-righteous, many come across as morally superior and non-Christians see that, and they get the wrong impression altogether, I believe. They get the impression that people like that, people who are very vocal and aggressive about their faith, now those must be the ones who are really committed, right? That must be what it looks like for people to really be all in and fully committed to their Christianity. But I would push back strongly on that. I would suggest instead that anyone who says they're a Christian and is harsh or condemning toward unbelievers in the name of Jesus and in the name of Christianity, I'd suggest that their problem is not that they're too committed to the gospel. No, their problem is that they're not committed enough. You don't get any more committed and zealous than the Apostle Paul. 
And yet we see him balancing grace and truth artfully here and throughout the New Testament. That's the key. You won't get very far at all with people who, uh, who don't share your beliefs if you come across as abrasive or self-righteous. They will, they will struggle to believe that you care about them. They certainly won't feel understood or respected. On the other hand, if you're only filled with soft and gentle feelings all the time, you probably won't be willing to open your mouth very often at all for, for risk of sounding offensive or being rejected or being labeled as a, a babbler like the Apostle Paul was here in this very passage. But Paul, he balanced the complex feelings he had about those around him who did not yet know Jesus. He wasn't driven only by strong feelings, and he wasn't driven only by soft feelings. He was driven by both, and we need to be driven by both too. But how do we do this? How does this work? I think one of the real keys to it all, one of the keys to our missional strategy as a people, one of the keys to our cultural engagement as a church, is the degree to which you and I feel provoked like Paul did with a godly jealousy when we look around at the people in our city. But I don't think this happens necessarily by trying harder to do this or by trying uh, harder to be more like Paul or by mustering up certain feelings because we're supposed to or because we're told to. Rather, I think that one of the ways this begins to happen within us is by seeing clearly that when Paul saw Athens and when Paul was provoked into action in Athens, what Paul was actually showing us there and what Paul was actually patterning for us there is a, a beautifully compelling picture of the gospel itself. What we see Paul doing in this passage as he saw, as he felt, and as he did, it mirrors, doesn't it, how God saw us and how God felt about us and how he did something about it. Think about this. What is the gospel after all? It's God looking down on the earth and seeing us, observing us, studying us as we pursued our own ways of living and our own forms of idolatry as we gave ourselves to various passions and pursuits other than him. And what God saw of us and what God saw in us, it, it affected him deeply. And it caused him to feel something. He felt provoked uh, to jealousy by what he saw. He was deeply distressed by our many idols and our misplaced worship. And how did he respond to what he saw and to what he felt? He did something about it, didn't he? Friends, the cross shows us God's anger at our sin. It shows us an anger so profound that Jesus needed to die for us, but the cross also shows us a love so profound that Jesus was willing to die for us. You see, human jealousy, when pushed, it will rise up and it will kill, but God's jealousy, when pushed, would step down and would die. When you and I look humbly and honestly, and see Jesus hanging on a cross, we see the ultimate expression of God's complex and balanced love for us, where his justice against sin 
and his love for his people find their fullest expression. As we gaze upon Jesus, seeing what he did for us, seeing why he did it and why he had to do it, seeing how he accomplished it, I hope that we will feel together as a people provoked into action because no matter who we're talking about in the culture around us, no matter where they're from or what they've done or what they believe, they are really no different than you or I. We all share a common condition in sin. We all share a common need for the truth and the grace of the gospel. Every single one of us and every single person around us, the people around us in our city, they need Jesus. They need him, but they just don't yet know it. Let us together do whatever it takes to understand those around us, to understand what their hearts are clinging to, and let's move toward them intentionally for Jesus. Let's speak to them thoughtfully about Jesus, and let's keep grace and truth in their proper balance as we do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your beautiful and complex love that you have for us. Thank you that you were so provoked by what you saw in us and by us that you sent Jesus to live and to die and to rise for us. God, would you make us a people who live out the gospel as Paul shows us here? Give us grace to be a people who, who feel something as we look around at the people of our city who don't know you. And God, would you make us a people who are provoked into doing something about it through our lives and through the words that we speak, all for your glory, for our joy in Jesus' name. Amen.